Uh, we have indeed come to the end of our time uh, looking at Jacob's life. Uh, and it's quite a passage uh, to find ourselves uh, at the end of. Um, it's an unusual one, I think, to finish the series on. And yet, indeed, actually, the book of Genesis comes to a close by making reference to the events of this very passage. Uh, some of Jacob's final words ever spoken are in condemnation of some of the things that occurred in tonight's passage. And so it's no passing curiosity, uh, but some of the scriptures don't dodge or glance over. Uh, and so uh, we, want, we want to do that. Uh, how about I do pray that I ask that God to be with us and to spend time in God's Word today. Uh, there is a QR code, as usual, at the bottom of the sheet. If there are questions that you have about the passage or the things that I speak about this evening, Father, we thank you that we saw in Jacob last week man having been humbled by your gracious hand, found rest and peace in you, and yet, Father, we, we turn to this very next passage this evening to see once again those who bear your name, grasping after what you promise in your own strength and a great cost to others. Father, we ask you would comfort us at the same time as warning us, Father, as we listen to these words this evening, that we might not dishonor the name of Christ in our longing after those things that you have promised to give us in his name. Amen. Building a great family legacy very often comes at an unjustifiably Perhaps to the family members themselves, or maybe just to those who are around about the family as they're seeking to build a name for themselves. Uh, several years ago now, there was a mini series on TV called How's That was following the Packer family. And as they built their family legacy, largely off the back of one day cricket, but well beyond that, and it was sobering to see the cost that many members of the family bore as they built their family legacy. And yet it's not just something that happens in the intimacy of individual families, it can happen at a national level as well. In fact, the Australian passports industry was built in a way, a legacy of it was built in a way that had great cost to others, particularly the indigenous community. And in today's passage, we're going to see the legacy of God's promises, God's great promises given to Jacob, passed on from Jacob, sons. And as the legacy of God's promise is passed into their hands, they will see some remarkable growth for God's people. And yet it's a growth that comes at a horrific cost. And we see that really playing out right from the start of chapter 4, chapter 34, sorry, uh, this evening. Turn there with me. Let's have a look at this opening paragraph. We read, having settled in Canaan, the land that God had promised to give them. We read, Now Dinah, the daughter of the Leah had born Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the ruler of the area, saw them, he took her and raped her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, 
He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father, Amen, get me this girl as my wife. It's deeply troubling and unsettling to read verses such as 2 and 3 alongside each other in some way. We often imagine that the line between warm people and wicked people will be clearly and neatly drawn for us. Yet we're defining, we're often defining the boundaries, people have often defined the boundaries of rape far too narrowly, as if it's only forceful assault that is working on the name as well. But the Bible's language on this front is far more expansive in what it identifies as violation the word used here for rape is far broader than just that which is physically violent or forceful. Whether the crown prince Shechem here wooed or propositioned Dinah, whether he had seduced her or pressured her, whether he perhaps forcefully or violently took her, we don't know for sure, but he has certainly grievously wronged her, not least by virtue of his power. We'll read later that Dinah continued to live in Shechem's household as these deeply troubled events in this chapter are played out for us. Indeed, Dinah's own brothers willingly leave her, willingly leave her living with Shechem while they negotiate in pursuit of their own interests. Rape is often neither clearly acknowledged for what it is, nor treated as the wickedness that it really is. It is often given other names and other descriptions. Uh, this situation here perhaps recalls the behaviour of Pharaoh towards Abraham's own wife, Sarah, when he took, Pharaoh took Sarah for himself. It was an arrangement which shamefully resulted in great financial benefit coming Abraham's way. He, he acquired great numbers of camels and flocks and servants as a result of Pharaoh's favour towards him, making him, Abraham, complicit in his wife's horrific treatment. This is a vulnerability that the Apostle Peter explicitly recognised in his own letter in the New Testament, and he warned that women were still shamefully subject to that kind of treatment in his own day as in now, the scriptures identify Shechem's actions here as rape. Because however sincere his romantic affections, however sincere his desire to honour Dinah in marriage, the simple and horrific reality is that he had violated her. And he had unjustly shamed her in the other ways. One of the more unsettling things about this passage is the way that, especially Dinah, but even Jacob himself, are barely heard from. But this isn't because the scriptures are simply insensitive to or uninterested in their part in the story. Uh, we're fast coming to the end of what Genesis has to say about Jacob's particular story in God's plans. The writer of Genesis will increasingly direct our attention away from Jacob towards Jacob's sons. Those sons who will give their names to each of the tribes of Israel. Those sons, those men, who are inheriting the legacy of God's promises, verses 1 
First thing to When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the field with his livestock. So he did nothing about it until they came home. Then Jacob's father, Amor, went out to talk with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the fields. As soon as they had heard what had happened, they were shocked and furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing which should not be done. We're told that Jacob refrained from taking action until his sons returned home from their food. Uh, as an elderly man, Jacob can scarcely have taken on the neighbouring city and was preaching him by himself. He had no 400 soldiers armed men at his disposal as Esau had until last week. And as can be seen by the response in verse 7, the outrage of Jacob's sons certainly has a lot to say for it. It snowballs very quickly. They certainly have something to say about the events. Though it is worth pausing for a moment to slow down and ask what exactly is motivating the outrage of Jacob's sons at this point. Is their concern actually Dinah's welfare? Or is it about something else? The sons seem far more outraged about the offence that has been done to Jacob, to the family name. They're more even offended by that scene than Jacob himself is. It seems that they're far more shocked about Israel's honour being insulted than they are actually concerned about Dinah's own welfare. And this should give us some thought before classing the outrage his brothers as virtue. We'll have to grapple with this a little bit more as we go through the passage and see where the brothers are occasionally. In verse 6, we read that Shechem's father, the ruler of the area, initiates contact with Jacob and Dinah's brothers. Uh, have a look at me from verse 8. But Hamor said to them, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Let me find favour in your eyes and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the gift and I am to bring as great as you like. And I will pay whatever you ask of me. Only give me the young woman as my wife. Marriage was one of the very few recognised public institutions that spanned nations and people groups in the ancient world. The institution of marriage often shaped politics, it shaped economics, it even shaped criminal law. Shape these things, politics, economics, and criminal law, at least as much as it had relevance to and shaped personal, private, family, household life. For Shechem, marriage is viewed as a means to legitimizing his relationship with God. For Hamor, 
marriage represents an opportunity to legitimize an ongoing relationship, political and economic, between two large groups of people, two community groups. And the outstanding question for us, of course, is what possible purpose could Diana's own family see for entertaining marriage discussions in a situation such as this? We'll actually see later on in the book of Exodus that Moses lays out how such marriage discussions might sometimes become a vehicle for passing judgment upon even criminal behaviour. Uh, let me read to you some of those verses, Exodus. We read there in Exodus 22. If a man seduces a woman who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price. Remember, the bride price went to the security, the future security of the woman. He must pay the bride price, and she shall be his wife. If the father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the bride price. The primary concern here in Exodus is that the woman who has been wronged in this way has the full bride price paid to her that will financially secure her future. Such a payment would ensure that she was financially cared for for the duration of her life. Shechem had offered to pay as big a bride price as was asked for. But do note here in Exodus. These negotiations about bride prices don't imply that the marriage itself must always go ahead. Even where any potential marriage is understandably and outrightly refused, the full bride price was still to be paid as a matter of justice in recognition of the outrageous wrong done to the woman. Shechem had wished to legitimise his passions for Dinah. Hamor wished to legitimise political and economic relationship how are Jacob's own sons going to approach these marriage negotiations? As an opportunity to secure justice for Dinah? Or in some other way? Have, have a look at me in verse 13. Carry on with me in verse 13. Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to him, we can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will enter into an agreement with you on one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, We'll take our sister as well. Jacob's sons had grown up in the household of their uncle Laban, and it appears that they'd learned a thing or two about deceit from their time with him. For those undergoing circumcision, circumcision was a sign that God would faithfully keep his promise to bless those who bore the sign. Jacob's sons here are using this very sign of circumcision in a way that implicates God's promise in their own practice of deception. They're implicating God in this deceitful scheme that they're hatching here. 
Jacob's sons were willing to even let him dine out with Shechem in his house. But to do so was to automatically legitimize the marriage. That's what they were doing when they said that they would walk away. Should Shechem and Hamor agree to their terms involving circumcision, they would go on their way and the marriage would proceed. Now, Jacob's brothers are using their sister as a bargaining chip in their own deceitful negotiations. It seems that Dinah's welfare has not factored into their opportunistic dealings at all. In verses 18 to 24, we won't read it this evening, but Hamor and Shechem get all of the men of their community to agree to the terms set by Jacob's sons, Dinah's brothers, using the lure of political and economic gain to sweeten what is otherwise a pretty Proposition. It's not going to be any good for the rest of the city if Shechem gets the woman that he wants. And so it's framed in the terms of political and economic gain. But it becomes horribly and horrifically clear from verse 25. The Dinah's brothers have completely lost sight of how their dealings might actually benefit or secure justice for their wrong sister. Have a look at it from verse 25. Three days later, this is after the men have been circumcised, three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every man. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks, and herds, and donkeys, and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything. The same word that right at the start of the passage had been used to describe Shechem's taking of Dinah is now used once again to describe the brothers taking Dinah back. And in the process of doing so, they took their swords and killed every man in the city. They carried off every woman and every child that remained. They looted and they seized everything else remaining in the city and in their homes. The taking back of Dinah from Shechem's household comes across less as being a genuine rescue and more just another instance of the brothers' vengeful looting. Do you notice how it is that Jacob's sons are building the nation of Israel? By taking in the most violent. How different to the way in which the Lord Jesus deals with God's people by giving of himself completely and utterly, but by taking from others. Dinah herself receives nothing at all from this entire episode. No bride price, no vindication. She receives nothing as a result of her brother's scheme. 
Her honour is not restored. She receives no justice or financial restitution for the wrongs that she suffered. The brothers simply take everything. That's what it says. Justice may have been taken, appropriated. Leah and Rachel's pride comes for himself. What started out looking like the brothers' virtuous concern for Dinah and the family honour ends up simply endangering him. Everything that his sons have claimed, they most value. Jacob's name and Jacob's honour. Have a look at me at verses 30 to 31, uh, the way in which the passage finishes. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me and my household, Will be destroyed. But they replied, Should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? It's been a common and understandable observation made by me that Jacob seems a little self focused in objecting to his son's brutal and barbaric actions. I think it should be pointed out that it's actually Dinah's brothers who have most treated her. They are the ones who traded her honour and her dignity like a bargaining chip in order to both enrich themselves and carry off the entire city's women for their own purposes. But Dr. Jacob's concern about becoming obnoxious to the surrounding nations perhaps just seem a little bit self-absorbed in that case. I'd actually like to suggest that whether Jacob knew it whether you recognize it or not. Jacob is actually highlighting something here that is crucial about his place in God's plans and purposes. That goes far beyond just his own self-interest or self-concern. The last time that Jacob had been in Bethel, that's the next place that Jacob's about to go to, the last time that Jacob had been in Bethel, God had made these two promises to Jacob. You might remember that. God had promised Jacob, you, your descendants, will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. And secondly, God had promised, all nations, all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. Jacob's sons had increasingly been taking responsibility for Jacob's legacy, and they've certainly contributed to the numerical growth of God's people, haven't they? have probably never been a moment in Israel's history, that they had a greater percentage of growth in such a short period of time. But they've certainly contributed in this numerical growth in a way that has blessed absolutely no one. In the way in which they've gone about it, their actions have made Jacob's name a curse rather than a blessing. By grasping after blessing and honour in their own strength, they've ended up bringing a curse and shame upon the name of Jacob. The name of the very one through whom God himself had promised that he would bless both them and all the nations around about them. In making Jacob's name a curse, Jacob's sons have set themselves up in direct opposition to what God had said he was going to do for the nations through Jacob. Grasping after God's promises by our own means will prove not only futile and needlessly frustrating, as we've seen the whole way 
through this account of Jacob's life. Wrestling to secure a blessing in our own strength will prove not simply needless and pointless exercise. It will typically lead us down a path in which we find ourselves ultimately dishonouring the very name through whom God has promised to bless us. And it's as much a danger for us as it is for Jacob's sons. Uh, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Thessalonian church, uh, wrote these words that are going to pop up on the screen. He says, We always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his glory and may fulfill every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. You notice what Paul is constantly praying? For the Thessalonians. Not that God would empower them to take matters into their own hands, to fulfill their own dreams, to bring about their own ambitions, but rather that God would empower them for every work of faith. That is, every work of trusting God to bring about his plans <laughs> And why does Paul pray that the, the Christian community would be empowered to trust God? to bring about what he has promised, it's so that the name of the Lord Jesus might be glorified rather than shamed, might be honoured rather than slain. We've seen it many times, haven't we, when Christian communities are taken into their own hands to establish themselves, their own position in society, their own honour, their own name. When they do so, they make the name Jesus a curse rather than blessing. They bring shame upon the one through whom God had said he would bring blessing to the nations, just as he had done concerning Jacob. In our longing to possess God's promises, the temptation will always prove to be, as it was for Jacob's sons, to grasp after them in our own manner and our own time. But such grasping never is behaviour of God's precious people. As was the case with Jacob's sons, such grasping will only ever end up making Jesus' name obnoxious to those who watch him. As we struggle, wrestle, and grasp after whatever we think is closest within our reach. Rather, it's by displaying faith in God's power to deliver his promises that Jesus' trustworthy name will be most honoured and glorified. And all people have opportunity. It is foolish not only to grasp and to wrestle after God's promises by our own strength, just because it's tiring, frustrating, and futile. It's foolish to do because it will bring shame and dishonor on his name, the name of the very one through whom God has set himself to bless all. Let's pray that we might not ever, in our grasping, bring shame on the Lord Jesus. But all might turn to him and be blessed. Dearest Father, we confess that there are times in which we grasp after your promises. We are filled with confidence in our own standing before you. Perhaps, Father, we, we even put it into practice and live it out in that. That testifies more to our own strength and standing than it does to your gracious.
in surgery with that limb, standing on our own strength. We bring shame to the name of the one in whom we have all of our life and breath. Father, we do ask that you might humble us, enable us to entrust ourselves in faith, that you might bring fulfillment to fulfillment all of your promises, that in trusting in you to deliver on your promises, we might not dishonour you and your precious Son. We ask this, Father, so that the name of the Lord Jesus might not be glorified and others might come to trust in that name. They might come to delight in that name, seeking that name, blessing of Jesus' name.